Today's episode is sponsored by Print Ninja. Ready to bring your board game to life? Print Ninja makes offset printing simple and affordable. Check out their new playable board game sample pack to get started planning your project or quote your game instantly with their unique budgetary calculator. And check out their interviews with board game creators for inspiration and advice. Visit printninja.com slash design lab to get started. And if you mention the board game design lab when you save a quote or reach out with questions, you'll receive a free 5% print overrun with your order. That's printninja.com slash design lab. Now, just on a quick personal note, Print Ninja actually sent me their board game sample pack, and I gotta be honest, it was pretty awesome. The quality was great. The miniatures, the cards, the boards, everything about it was just super high quality, super top notch. And so Print Ninja might be a good option for you if you're looking into uh, publishing your own game. I know they do a lot of stuff for you. And so if you're getting started and you're not entirely sure as far as, you know, all the shipping and all the craziness that goes into the business side of things, they might be a really good company to check out. And so head on over to their website and see if it's right for you. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, today we're partying. Today we're talking about party games. We're talking to Alex Haig from Palm Court Games. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Really excited to have you on the show. Uh, you're a, an expert in this category as far as I'm concerned. You've designed uh, the incredible game, Wavelength. Uh, you, you made Monikers into just a phenomenal game that, that's one of my favorite party games personally. And so I'm really just pumped to kind of understand your thought process, your design process for creating a, a awesome party game. I know it's something a lot of people want to do. You know, they, they want to put together a game that brings people together and they have fun and are laughing and all this stuff. But at the same time, it's super challenging, especially in today's day and age where so many games are out there, so many amazing party games. So it's hard to, uh, hard to make a really good one these days, it seems like. So I'm really uh, interested in getting your your process for how to do it. But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get to game design? All that kind of thing. Sure. So I got into game design sort of by accident, which I think is how a lot of people get into this industry. Um, I just, you know, I, I love to play games and I've, you know, played games since probably like high school where I met a sort of group of friends that sort of did this type of thing. And I just sort of slowly, you know, started with games like Settlers or like classic games like D&D and just sort of over the years, I kind of... Uh, kind of developed an interest in like making games and it was sort of this abstract idea that like in my in my you know day job and everything I would like occasionally just sort of you know prototype different types of games that I was interested in um but I like worked in the nonprofit world and international education for a really long time and so it was always just like a side thing that I did and um and, you know over the years like I was I was trying to think of a way to keep up with a friend of mine who uh who lives in Chicago we're really good friends but you know like what happens when you live in different cities, uh, you just sort of like, you know, need an excuse to hang out. And so our excuse to hang out was essentially like, we both, you know, love the folk game celebrity, or it's also known as like the hat game or like the box versions are monikers and times up. And we just, you know, we just started kind of making a version of that for ourselves and for our friends. And so, um, and so that sort of turned into something that, uh, that we did a Kickstarter for that was, um, you know, that was just sort of always meant to be a, a 
thing that we just sort of did is 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 two friends trying to stay in touch and it kind of like blew up enough from there that I kind of had to like reconsider my entire career trajectory. Very cool. That's a good problem to have. You know, all of a sudden you make a lot of money doing something you really enjoy and have to change your life. I think that's uh, not a bad way to go. <laughs> but did you ever expect it to become what it's become now and kind of being this full on full time job business kind of thing? Uh, it wasn't. I I guess I would say it wasn't until maybe like a year or so in like, you know, we launched the Kickstarter. It did fine. Um, it got way more backers than I thought it would, but like nothing that was like transformative, nothing like these sort of overnight Kickstarter successes that you would see. Um, this was also 2015, I think. So the landscape was just different. It wasn't sort of like dominated by these sort of like titans of the board game industry raising like $8 million on Kickstarter. It was like very much more the era of like Cards Against Humanity raising $15,000 and thinking about printing their game on business cards. Um, so we sort of jumped into that. And when we ended the, with 2000 backers, we thought that was like the greatest we could ever possibly imagine doing. Um, so yeah, it was really, um, it wasn't until a year or two down the road where we saw that monikers had kind of become this like evergreen game where like, we were just going to like sell a certain number of copies every year. And it didn't sort of like have this big spike and then just no one bought it anymore. But it was instead a game that, you know, had these nice network effects where, uh, you know, someone would play the game with their friend and their friend would buy a copy and that process would repeat to a point where we were selling enough over, you know, over like a couple of years at that point where we could do that, have an expansion every year. And it made sense to like, basically like have one full-time employee, which was me. Yeah. Very cool. All right. So let's get a good little working definition. What is a party game? Like, what does that mean exactly? I'm really bad at the sort of like etymology and sort of like formal classifications of games because I just, I, I find it really, really hard to sort of like divide the line between sort of like party games and social games and card games. But to me, like when I think of a party game, I think of something that sort of facilitates social interaction, allows you to sort of be clever and then sort of around the margins. It's, it's a game that to me probably de-emphasizes sort of strict adherence to rules more than say like a traditional board game um, for the purpose of facilitating fun rather than competition. Yeah, definitely. It seems like a lot of these games, the rules get kind of, they're, they're beside the point. Like the like you're saying, the fun is the main thing. And so rules aren't that important. A lot of times scoring also isn't that important. I feel like if I remember right, monikers in the box, it says, here's how to keep score, but you probably don't need to. Like you probably don't need to worry about it if I'm remembering that right. And so that also seems to play into it. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. I just, for me, that uh, the best sort of hallmark of a party game is that you are playing it. You're sort of, you start out, you're keeping score. You're like counting, somebody wins. And then you just play again and all of a sudden you're not keeping score. You're just like, playing the game with total kind of free play. Um, and so to me, the best party games do exactly that. And that's sort of a thing that I think fills a weird niche in the, in the gaming community, because it's, um, it's something that like people seem to have extremely strong feelings about one way or the other around the sort of squishiness of the rules or the sort of looseness of how much you should actually keep track of uh, the competitive aspects of a game. Right. And you mentioned the term social game, a moment ago, and I think there there's a definite difference because if you play a game like Coup or uh, Secret Hitler or something like that, like winning and losing matters. And, and even though there's a lot of people playing, you might have quite a few people at the table and you're yelling and you're doing like some party kind of things. 
I feel like winning and losing still matters a lot more in that game than say a game like Spyfall or in, in one of your games, Monikers uh, or Wavelength. I, I feel like that's also maybe a, a difference to, to kind of discuss. So tell me like your thoughts on a social game versus a party game. Right. With, with a social game, I think you totally nailed it. Like it's something that really is, is sort of facilitates sort of interaction between you and your friends, but there are social games that aren't party games in the, in the sort of way that you've, you've kind of theorized there. And I think like, if you, if you sort of took that approach to competitiveness in a game like Coup or even Secret Hitler to a party game context, like monikers or something, it would be psychopathic because <laughs> like you would, it would just seem so strange to, uh, to see someone being so competitive around uh, around a party game, and like that's not to say that people don't like we. I've definitely sort of encountered people that do, and I I find it strange every time because it's just you know it takes all kinds. But I also just um, I'm always sort of taken aback by people that take party games so seriously. Um, but like there's sort of common DNA in in all of them, I think, to where they're not entirely dissimilar because like to me at least the core of this of this genre and maybe they're just sort of sub disciplines underneath of it is these are games that your interaction with your friends around the table or in the same room or whatever venue it might be is more important in some ways than than the sort of like abstract competitiveness as a rule and so on some sort of wavelength spectrum of you know competitiveness to to sort of like socialization or something like that like party games are just sort of like over on one side and then, you know, maybe coup is closer to the middle than monikers. Yeah, definitely. All right. So why do you think people are so drawn to these games? Like what is it about these games that really just brings people in? I, you know, I mean, it's really dumb to say, but I just think they're really fun. Like people love to kind of like talk and laugh and joke with their friends and, um, and party games are something that to me at least are, um, give you a new perspective, like, if they work the way that like, you know, I think they should work or they work at the like highest level, they're a way that sort of recontextualizes like how you interact with your friends in a way that's sort of novel and interesting because you've never sort of like been in a particular situation with them before where they had to describe something a certain way. Whereas you've probably like, you know, like gossiped or talked trash or talked about work with your friends a million times. And so party games like allow, I mean, this is like a sort of high, high, high level of, uh, of sort of like weird theory, but it sort of lets you kind of like re sort of like interact with your, with your friends in a way that's completely like novel, um, that you really couldn't, um, in a context without it, because you're not getting these sort of new inputs, um, after you've like known someone for a certain time, right. You've like gone to all the restaurants, you've talked about food, you know, their opinions about like dating, you know, their opinions about like types of things that they like to eat, but like, you know, you play Spyfall and you like have not quite had an experience where like you have seen them talk about being in a fake aircraft carrier or something like that. Yeah, that's a really good point. I feel like these games do a great job at giving people uh, an excuse, a reason to maybe be different than their normal personality, right? So if, if somebody is normally super quiet, super reserved, all of a sudden this gives them a stage. It gives them a chance to maybe kind of live outside of that normal box and you could have a lot of fun and everybody's doing it. And so you don't feel as weird or, you know, as uncomfortable maybe because everybody kind of has a chance to be silly together or just kind of have fun together. Now, why did you want to design any of these things? Like what brought you into it from a design standpoint? It's really interesting because actually like I, when I 
think back to like where I was like before we made monikers, I just, it was, I would have not thought that like, I would have like gone in this direction. Like I've always loved party games, but like where my heart was, was definitely in sort of these, like at that point I was like, I just like loved sort of like Twilight Struggle and these sort of strange, like counterinsurgency GMT games. And like, I'm trying to think of like what sort of like triggered there that like led to that change because like, you know, I'm sort of omnivorous in, in the types of games that I play. And so I was like, you know, playing games like Twilight Struggle alongside, uh, you know, our sort of silly box version of Celebrity. Um, but I think it's just like as silly as it sounds like it's a lot of ways just sort of like random chance and sort of seeing that um, the shortest path to maybe like making a game with uh, with my friend Justin, uh, Justin Vickers, who's the who's the co-creator of Monikers, um, was just uh, working from an existing kind of folk game framework uh, that kind of allowed us to uh, jump the line in terms of uh, in terms of what we had to do to get a published game out there uh, and then to use that to develop more original work. Very cool. All right. So let's talk about some of your favorite games. I want to talk about obviously your games in just a minute, but what are some of the games that other people have done, other people have published that are party games that really just scratch that itch for you, make you excited to maybe design more party games? Like what are some of your favorites? I think the most genius party game that's been made over the past five years is Word Slam. And it's just sort of criminally under, like under discussed and, and, is not sort of getting the critical reaction that I would have expected because it's when I think about like all the incredible party game experiences that I've had over the past like few years, I think like none of the like highs um, have been matched by, by some, we had this sort of very fun like board game night on Wednesdays where we've sort of gone out, we go out to the same bar every Wednesday night and we played word slam for hours there probably for like weeks at a time. Um, and to kind of briefly give a summary of the game, it's, uh, it's a, it's a game where you're given a clue. So a classic party game setup, right? You have a clue like, um, Stephen Hawking or something like that. And so you on your team and another person on another team are clue givers. And so you're trying to get your team to guess the name on the card, like basically, you know, like at 50% of party games, right? But the way you do that is you both have a deck of cards that have different parts of speech on them. Um, so some might be colors like black, white, orange. Some are verbs like run, uh, fly. Um, and you essentially have to go through and, and pick out these individual words and put them on a plastic stand to get your team to guess uh, the name. And so we just have so like it's just a machine for uh, it's a machine for inside jokes in the way that like the best games of like monikers and wavelength are. And it just leads to these really, really beautiful, like crystallized, like, uh, memories that you have where you'll remember that, you know, one of your friends gave a clue for fashion show, like beautiful, skinny person turned left or something like that. And like, you sort of like puzzled over that for five minutes. And then all of a sudden, like you realize what it was. Um, or th with the Stephen Hawking context, I remember my friend, Andrew, uh, his clue was technology mouthman for time science. And there are just so few games that lead to these like incredible, like crystallized memories, um, like word slam. And I just, um, I'm just still kind of like beating the drum for it, uh, you know, year after year at this point, because I just think it's such a brilliant design and 
has sort of like criminally been underrated by uh by gamers and also just like you know casual people that would pick up a game in a store very cool and that reminds me of another part of party games i think that uh most other games just don't have is this whole like meta where outside the game like contributes so many other things i was watching a movie this was years ago and uh, the main character and his like girlfriend were playing this this is some kind of like word game with the this other couple kind of like the the conflict couple right and um they were just getting destroyed because this other couple would just look at each other and they would say something like mexican dude and the other guy and the, the husband would be like oh enrique iglesias yes you know and like they because they were so on the same wavelength as far as like what words meant other things and so it seems like party games bring in these like outside things more than any other style of game like i don't know a worker placement game where you would you know be there sitting there thinking about like what happened two weeks ago and that's going to like really affect your play unless you're really mad at somebody and so you're just going to like try to make them lose you don't want to win you just want to make them lose and that, that could be different but it seems like uh party games have this interesting meta so is that something you're thinking about in the design process as well like how these kind of outside the game things can impact inside the game Oh, definitely. I think I think you you really hit onto something that's super important about party games, which is just um, you kind of bring more of yourself um, or like a more holistic version of yourself to a party game than you would to a strategy game, say, um, where you're essentially like bringing your sort of like strategic ability or analytic ability or something. Um, but uh, but with a party game, you're sort of bringing in your pre-existing personal relationships. And that's not a thing that's sort of discouraged or, you know, thought of as like kingmaking or something like that. And instead it's a, a kind of celebration of when you have these moments of kind of like mind melting with a friend of yours or like realizing that you both know this really obscure reference. And you remember from three years ago that someone was talking about like a place in a certain funny way, um, that that's like a, a cause for joy and like a cause for celebration. Um, when someone uses that, whereas, you could imagine in a more strategic game, uh, people getting annoyed if uh, if you had essentially like conspired to cheat together based on your own personal experience outside the game, right? And those, and that's maybe like I had never really thought of it that way, but it's a really like core difference in the way uh, in the way that party games and, and social games uh, differ from more traditional like board and strategy games. Yeah, definitely. And this actually reminds me, I had a friend who was at a, a board game convention years ago and he was playing in a tournament and he was in, it was a multiplayer, you know, super competitive game, four player game. And it was him and some other person. And then the other two people were a married couple. And basically they just worked to help each other the whole game effectively. I like didn't, you know, never played cards against each other, always try to hurt everybody else. That way they were basically ensuring that one of them was going to win, right? They were kind of king, trying to king make each other. And uh, he was pretty salty about that at the end because, like, they, you know, one of them ended up winning and moving on in the tournament. And he's like, this this is cheating. <laughs> he was super <laughs> frustrated by that. But in a party game, that would just be normal. That would be expected. And so it's just a, an interesting angle to design from. Now, as far as making these games, what are what are the things about, you know, if you're, if you're sitting down and you're going to design a new one, what are the things you're thinking about as far as, like, what makes these games good? Like, what are some of the, the just general factors that go into it and you're thinking, okay, I want to make a good one. And so I want to make sure, you know, as far as like, I want to make the, the time to play this or the player count this or whatever, like, what are you thinking about as far as how do we make a good one of these? Right. So to start with, I guess, like it's, there's a very unsatisfying answer, which is like, you try to have a really interesting novel idea. Um, and that's not, you know, it's very difficult to sort of unpack like how that works and, and what happens in that process. But Imagine like starting from 
that point of having an interesting idea. So um, with Wavelength, um, Wavelength sort of works as a good example of this, where there is this core concept of uh, guessing a location on sort of a point between like two extremes. Um, and so how you design around that is at least my approach has always been what are sort of the like key moments of like the most excitement and the most fun that people are having in this game and how do we just sort of ramp them up in a way that's uh, in the way that sort of like foregrounds them and makes them into these like really, really crazy climaxes or makes the sort of like deliberation moment really interesting and tense. And so, you know, there are all sorts of ways to do that. Like, um, in code names, there's, you know, the the assassin card is a good example of, uh, of something that like really like seems like a sort of crucial aspect to make the game have a lot of like salience where it might otherwise just be sort of like guessing words. Um, and so I think always having something that uh, that sort of like keeps the keeps the tension active and keeps everyone like uh, interested around the board. Um, these are sort of aspects of, of game design that always sort of exists across games but are especially important in party games where you know someone might be getting up to get a beer another person might be like having a conversation across the table and so it's really really crucial to sort of like design around these sort of like attention spikes and um and sort of like having everyone sort of always be part of the part of the participation of the game so that you don't like lose people's interests right now do you have any you know, constraints as far as, okay, this game can't last more than half an hour. This game needs to go up to 12 players, anything like that. Um, I mean, it, it, you know, it always sort of, these things almost always sort of like emerge out of like what the game is like asking you to make it, not to be like too sort of like airy about it, but you know, you sort of like have this core idea around wavelength and, and you have this concept that works and it's like, well, it's not really, it's a game that provokes like discussion and debate. And so it seems like it's probably not going to be like an amazing two player game. Like you could play a two player and I have, and it's fun, but like you clearly want it to be uh, a higher player count and like sort of the vicissitudes of the, of the market sort of consider party games also as like a thing that you would normally play with a large player count of people, which then itself demands a certain level of like simplicity of the rules and everything. And so all of that like really exists in this sort of large sort of like ecosystem of like what people expect from a party game, uh, sort of match, wanting to match people's expectations while at the same time wanting to subvert them in various ways. Um, but like to me, I think like a good party game would, you know, probably like play up to, you know, eight people or so like comfortably um, and then be scalable way higher than that ideally. Um, but you know, if I could imagine, like we could sort of think or like sit around and think about a party game that would be great for three people. And I'm sure it would, you know, I'm sure if it was like a great idea and like a great execution, it would be, it would work totally well as a party game. Um, in terms of the timing, I guess, like, again, sort of there's expectations around a party game, not lasting very long or not overstaying its welcome. And so that's probably a less malleable thing where like, you probably don't want a party game that lasts two hours for instance um but you know i could imagine you could go up to you know i would feel totally comfortable making a party game that lasted an hour and like you know as much as you say it shouldn't last for a long time you sort of have these sort of things that look at it completely kind of orthogonally like don't get got and like you could argue that that game lasts 48 hours 72 hours uh just with like again the attention spikes being in uh 
very, very like strangely distributed places. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think it's really about the game not overstaying its welcome. And whatever threshold that is, whatever limit that is, that's where you need to put it. And so if it's a game that it, it needs to be a 20-minute game and then during playtesting it's lasting 40, well, you got to figure out a way to cut that game in half. Because it's, you know, at what point do the players just kind of get bored of it? Or what, at what point do the laughs kind of die down? Or what point are people ready to do something else? And just kind of figuring out what that sweet spot is. Now, another thing I'm just in there thinking about is, you know, a lot of these games are team-based. And the teams can honestly have an infinite number of people. Uh, and because the games aren't really about winning or losing, a lot of, you know, people typically don't feel bad if they don't get very many turns or they don't you know, get to be the one to shout out the answer. Uh, they're glad just to sit there and kind of enjoy the experience. And so I guess that's another thing just to think about in designing. Like, what kind of experience are you creating? And you don't necessarily have to worry about balance so much. Like, is that something that you, that you think about during you know, your design process? Is like trying to figure out, you know, somebody, somebody guests that come on the show. Balance is a huge aspect of designing games. But what are you thinking as far as balance for your games? That's a great question, honestly. Like, I really, like, as someone who sort of, like, worked on strategy games, I've never really published one, but sort of the difficulty around balancing cards and balancing sort of mechanics is is so difficult. And with party games, like, we've really sort of had it easy so far because there are balance issues related to it. But like you mentioned, it's really not, um, if you mess up a balance issue in a party game, like people are going to be pretty forgiving of you. Like, you know, monikers is sort of like built on top of this, like kind of like horribly constructed tower of balance, basically, where in the early days we're like, well, a monikers card that's really, really like difficult, like the, you know, the sort of like the astronaut who like drove across the country wearing space diapers to kidnap her boyfriend or whatever. Um, that card is a lot harder than, you know, uh, like uh, someone like, you know, Barack Obama. And the solution we came up to it was essentially assigning points to, um, to each card level. So it would encourage people to spend a lot of time trying to get their team to guess what uh, uh, the harder cards. Um, but like there's a clear flaw in that, which is that the difficulty of the cards is not... Uh, does not stay the same across all rounds of monikers. And so, you know, in some ideal world, in some sort of strategy game world, we would have shipped a card that had Barack Obama on it. Very easy in the first round, so one point. Um, probably very easy in the second round, so also one point. But then in the third round where you can only do charades, well, like Barack Obama's president, like he doesn't have like a huge amount of like physical mannerisms. He's not like, you know, sort of a mime or something where it's very easy to do a charade. So let's say Barack Obama's like three points in round three. Um, like in an ideal world, that's essentially how we would structure, uh, you know, getting points for, uh, for monikers. But like, because it's a party game, it's just absolutely impossible to do that because you're just asking, um, people playing a party game to sort of like, you know, look at the middle number between the two slashes and like, you know, in a strategy game, like you're playing something really intense like that, you would absolutely have no problem doing that. Um, but in a party game, it's like completely out of the question. Yeah, that's a great point. You're designing a game where the points really don't matter or shouldn't matter and probably won't matter to 99% of the people who play it. So don't overthink it. Now, before we continue, let's actually just step back and get a, a good description of these two games we've been talking so much about, these two games that you've designed. Give me kind of like the elevator pitch for monikers and then tell me about Wavelength. Just that, you know, so when people hear these names, you know, hear, hear us talking about it, they're actually understanding what we're saying. Sure. Uh, so Monikers is our twist on a classic guessing game. 
uh, guess the name on the card. So, um, you know, you'll draw a card and it'll say Barack Obama or, you know, uh, crocodile hunter or, you know, way weirder things like uh, the lady that drove across the country in her space diapers. Um, and you essentially have 60 seconds to get your team to guess as many of those as they can. Um, and you can say anything you want. Uh, then um, you'll play this over three rounds. And so that's what you do in the first round. In the second round, you reuse the exact same deck, uh, but you can only say one word. Uh, and then in the third round, the same deck again, but you can only do charades. And so by the end, you sort of built up all these inside jokes and everything. And this is sort of our riff on this classic party game called Celebrity or Fishbowl or the Hat Game, or it's like a million different names. People have sort of tried to trace the etymology over the years back to the Victorian era in some points. And the thing about it is just, uh, I think a lot of people just love making it their own. And, and, and one of the things that I think we contributed most to it is just sort of expanding kind of the realm of the possible for, um, for what counts as a, you know, as a quote unquote celebrity, um, where, where we sort of like started with this core group of things that are just like, I don't know, things that are alive so they can be animals and stuff like that to the point where, you know, um, you have clues like Fermat's last theorem or something like that, or just sort of random words or emoji or things like that. Like, and as we sort of done that, we've gone weirder and weirder and weirder. And, um, there doesn't seem to be any sort of like sort of blocking point to, to making that to people not being able to guess these things. And it's just this like kind of like triumph of people being able to describe strange things that like is sort of constantly like fun and exciting to see as we sort of like grow weirder and weirder with the kind of concept behind all of the, uh, the card set that we put together for it. With pop culture, there's so many new people becoming celebrities every single minute, it seems like, because of YouTube and because of memes and all these other things. Like, you're, you're never going to run out of material. And I think it's just, again, it's one of my absolute favorite party games. And I also love how you guys added the fourth round where you can do all these weird, goofy things. I think one of them, if I remember right, is you have to act out the word with just your hands. So it's like charades, but you can only use your hands. And there's another one you have to act it out, but you can only use your head. And so you're just moving your head around trying to get people to guess Mother Teresa and how in the world do you do that with just your hands or just your head. And so it just creates hilarious moments. And uh, yeah, you, well done on that game, sir. But uh, yeah, go ahead. Tell me about Wavelength. Oh, thank you. Um, so so yeah, so Wavelength is, is similar in that it's a social party game type thing where, you know, like you mentioned, sort of winning is beside the point or sort of, like trying to win is important, but winning itself is is irrelevant. Um, so wavelength is uh, is sort of a game where you're trying to read the mind of a person giving a clue, and the person who's giving a clue is uh, is going to basically like spin a dial, uh, and on that on the on this sort of like 180 degree spectrum, there's going to be a sort of like game show type target location with three sort of colorful wedges. And it's going to basically be somewhere along this entire spectrum. The rest of the team doesn't know where it is. And it's the clue giver's goal to get the team to get to turn a turn a big chunky dial um, to where they think that target is. But the problem is that the dial or the wheel is completely hidden behind a screen. And so the only way the clue giver can get their team to guess the location is by giving a clue on a spectrum between two different concepts. The easiest one being um, hot and cold. And so on the spectrum between hot and cold, a clue giver would maybe give the clue coffee. And so once they've given that clue, the clue giver's team would basically turn the dial to where they think coffee is on that spectrum between hot and cold. And they would, you know, 
that being a really easy one, it would probably be something like, uh, you know, it's a little on the hot side, but it's not the hottest thing in the world. Um, and so that's the core of wavelength. And so from that, it sort of like jumps off the rails very quickly from, you know, hot, cold to sexy emoji, unsexy emoji, or, um, you know, worst day of the year, best day of the year, or things like, um, things like vapes doesn't vape, like things that sort of mix pop culture sort of questions about the like physical scale of things, questions about people's ethical opinions, like things that sort of function as this kind of springboard for conversation by kind of giving these provocations where you're trying to figure out where on the spectrum someone thinks a thing is. And it just sort of spirals out into this like really long series of like discussions, typically if, if the game is sort of being played at the in the sort of like right spirit where people are just sort of, you know, the best moment in wavelength is essentially like people arguing with each other and someone being like, I haven't seen the dial move in a while. And the person's like, Oh yeah, it's fine where it is. I'm just like trying to make a point. <laughs> yeah. What I love about this game is it opens up people to kind of have their own like personal feelings added into it. Like there's not necessarily a right or wrong answer. It's just kind of a, a range, which is interesting. Like you're saying with the hot and cold, you know, if someone said coffee, and somebody else sitting there th- is thinking, wow, coffee is really, really hot. Like that's, that's super hot. And, I'm, and so they put the, you know, the dial way over on the hot side. And then, you know, it's, it's not, you don't get very many points or any points. And, and they're like, well, coffee's super hot. So like, yeah, but it's not as hot as the sun. It's not as hot. You know, and, and, and so it, it kind of creates all these really funny moments for people, like you're saying, to argue back and forth about, you know, how, how far something is one way or another. But in the, at the end of the day, it's an argument that doesn't really matter. And I think, I think the world needs more arguments that, that, uh, that don't matter. I think we uh, we spend so much time arguing for things, especially on Facebook and Twitter, arguing about things that really do matter, whether we're talking about, you know, the climate or, you know, the different state of the world in, in different ways. And uh, it's nice just to argue about, you know, what's, what's hotter coffee versus the sun and, and thinking through those things. So it provides a cool, you know, escape from real life things. Yeah. And I think like, it's really important to sort of have this sort of like space that you can exist in where you can kind of like have this like sort of dialectical back and forth around, uh, around different ideas and sort of like take them seriously and also be joking, but also, um, using as your sort of guiding principle, like what I'm trying to like get into the head of this person. Like I'm trying to like walk a mile in their shoes and think about like, what would Gabe think is qualifies as hot or like, what would he really like think of as like, um, greatest living person? Like like, is there someone above this? Where should we turn it in a way that I think is like, um, you know, we haven't quite talked about this very much, but like, I think like great party games because of the ways they, they evoke all these social things is like the component where you're trying to sort of like understand a person from an empathic point of view seems like a, a critical aspect of it. And so when we're trying to make games, like that's normally like a really, really, really core feature of it. If it's a, if it's a social party game. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Now, when it comes to complexity, what are you thinking? Because, you know, again, like we've already been saying, you know, these games need to be fairly simple. They need to be, you know, easy to explain. Uh, it needs to be where, where someone can learn the rules one time and they've basically got the rules forever. And so when you're thinking about how complex one of these games is going to be, like, what are you thinking? What are some things that you've maybe had to cut from some of your games? That kind of thing. It's really interesting because like you look at a game like Wavelength and it's it seems like it just sort of like maybe it evolved from like an even simpler idea. And it's sort of like, you know, then we added the over under thing and maybe then we added this or that. But like there were just so many blind alleys that were pursued in it. That's, you know, it, it, it 
typically like the simplest games start off as these sort of like complex beasts um, that you essentially just sort of have to like remove, 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 remove until it's um, until it's sort of the the final version of it is essentially the like most truest like expression of like what the core fun idea is in it. Um, and so with wavelength, like the over under was actually like a really, really, really small distillation of an entirely like discarded feature we had where people essentially there was a betting system where people could um, could like wager on their confidence index of of guessing. Um, and so I think like every, you know, both teams had sort of bidding chips. And so you could sort of like bid how like how confident you were in that. And then the opposing team could sort of like counter bid. And it just there was something like actually a little interesting to it, but like, you know, at the end of the day, you got to a point where you realize like the core fun here is just to engage the other team in the process of like thinking about the, the active team's clue. And like, what if they just got the guess over under? And like, we tried that and it was like, Oh yeah, this is obvious. This is sort of accomplishing this design goal in a way less sort of a Baroque way. Gotcha. Now, when it comes to theme, for party games, you know, tell me what your thoughts are on that because, like, it seems like these uh, these games have all sorts of different themes. But at the same time, you, there are certain themes you don't ever see and maybe shouldn't. And so, tell me what your, your thoughts are as far as how to theme a good party game. I guess like it's interesting because I don't think of like theme has never been like a really big driver of the development process of any of these games. Like I would say like wavelength I guess has sort of a very loose theme, but it's essentially just to kind of evoke the feeling of like, Oh, you're trying to read someone's mind. And so there's sort of this vague kind of like aesthetic current running through it. That's about, um, that's about sort of like telepathy and sort of like mind melding and everything, but it's nearly all, all sort of, uh, suggested by the uh by the visual design of the game rather than you know a sort of um a sort of larger backstory of like um oh well you're psychics in a laboratory trying to like hook someone up to a mind reading machine and so this thing is very literally that you know that machine and 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 all these things that like were part of um our thought press or around the uh around the development of the game but like all just sort of fell away because you essentially just want to let people's like minds run wild. You sort of like put the sort of like vibe of the game in their head. And then like, you don't want to overdetermine it. You don't want to like name the psychic agency that the people are working for or anything like that. Cause just at least to me, like then I just like get bogged down in details and, and you're, you end up like role playing in various ways that like, I think is sort of contrary to the nature of like a lot of party games that I make at least which are which are sort of about like self-expression and it's you you know you the person uh coming to the table rather than being like oh we're you know psychic detectives doing this thing and i'm sort of like you know i'm a man named brian and so now i have to think of like what would brian do in this situation and like there are a lot of really successful party games that do that but it's just those things have never quite gripped me as much as like trying to really loosely hold the theme in mind while just sort of having it be having it be something that like falls away once you sort of understand the core dynamic. Yeah, it's really interesting because I can see how certain games like Spyfall, you know, if if you say, "All right, all of us are at a movie theater and one of us doesn't know they're at a movie theater." You're like, "Well, why?" You know, I can, I can see that why question coming up for a lot of these kind of games and so the theme can help explain the why. It's like, "Oh, well, one of us is a spy and you just got dropped in, you're not entirely sure which and the rest of us are trying to figure out who the spy is." Like, oh, "Okay." And so it kind of gives a, a more of a structure whereas other party games it really doesn't matter. It's not about that at all. It's all about the way the game plays and, and laughing and having fun. So I, I think that's something to think about 
when designing one of these is like, do you need a theme? Like, does the theme help answer the why question? And does it really even matter? Because maybe you don't really need a theme overall. Right. And like, I think like if the takeaway for some people is that like, oh, well, you don't need a theme, like that doesn't seem quite right either. It's more like you need, you know, basically like you need to sort of like set the stakes of the game. You need everything that sort of like you've used to describe the game, both both visually and in the writing about the game, like teach the people why the game is fun, why it's interesting and how to play the game. Like whether or not that's like your sort of like spies working for the British government or whatever, like if you need that level of detail, you need that level of detail. But for most party games, I think you don't because like you're essentially just bringing yourself um, to the experience. And so, you know, you're trying to, I'm trying to imagine like playing like a game, like just one, but you know, there's some sort of like overly ornate theme attached to it as to like why you can only write one clue. Right. And it just like, it would be so beside the point um, because like you really do just want to get to the core fun and like any sort of like, uh, additional kind of messaging around that would would probably only detract. Right. Now, we've already talked a little bit about scoring systems, uh, but let's go a little bit deeper. When you're trying to figure out a scoring system, especially for a game where you realize the scoring system probably doesn't even matter, like what's your thought process? What are you, what are you thinking when you're designing the scoring system for these games? Um, so I think like they basically like you need to design them as if they like matter very critically, but also like like you mentioned, and like we've sort of talked about a little bit that ultimately like the sort of best expression of the game is, is sort of in a kind of like falling away of all of these systems and just like playing truly for like the pleasure of playing. Um, but with wavelength, it's sort of um, the scoring system developed because we needed something to essentially create that moment of excitement around getting a, getting a direct bullseye or like getting in the target area versus not. Um, and so that scoring system is essentially just sort of structured in order to provide the provide the sort of like material incentive um, to combine with the kind of aesthetic incentive of like the reveal moment happening and just like seeing a really like colorful thing that the dial is on. And so those two, just like getting those two things to like work in tandem to get the teams like to really, really like the, f- the high five moment of just really enjoying like having done a good job. And so knowing that we're like, you know, then you're sort of halfway there, right? You're just like, well, it's going to be one, two, three or two, three, four, because, you know, the sort of like classic thinking around like one being double, the you know, being half of two, um, but two not being half of three. So like basically like scaling at two, three, four instead of one, two, three. Um, and then just having it be, uh, be like held lightly enough that that's sort of what the, what the, what the sort of like game system is designed around. And then, then you sort of like take from that and project out like, well, what is like a good play experience look like then people maybe score, you know, their average score might be two, three, zero, four, three, two. It's like, Oh, like how long would that game last? Like what is the average length of a round? And so you're doing it a lot, I think in a party game from an experience point of view, rather than a like uh, competitive balance point of view, uh, even though that's important too. But like, to me, the scoring and and sort of like how that leads to the end game is based on you want the game to be around like 20 to 30 minutes long and no longer. And so the scoring system is essentially structured around that, um, where if you do well, the game's going to end really quickly. Um, and you'll sort of see people online be like, well, the game was like really fun, but it like ended really fast. And it's like, 
well, would you really like want the game to go on a lot longer if like the other team like scored like two bullseyes and are up eight to zero and the other team isn't having fun? Like, why don't, why not just like get that game over with and like play again and switch the teams up? Like to me, that's sort of like some of the core decision-making points around how to do scoring in party games rather than like a lot more of a traditional perspective from like strategy game, uh, from the strategy game space where you're really thinking about uh, more issues around balance than you are necessarily for like, time constraints and things like that. Yeah, it's less about winning versus losing and more about uh, being a timer, you know, the score acting as a timer for when the game is going to end. And like you said, if you want to, you know, do it again, a lot of these games you can play immediately again. And so if someone does, you know, they get three crazy uh, right answers on the first three turns and then they win, it's like, okay, we'll run that back. Let's switch teams. (laughs) Let's move some people around and let's play again because, you know, it only takes 15, 20, maybe 30 minutes. And so I think that's something to think about, like like you're saying. If you're designing one of these and you're trying to figure out how long the game's going to last, well, use the score, use the points as the timer for that structure. Exactly. And um, and then the other thing is uh, the the system that we're really proud of with Wavelength is also just um, the catch-up mechanic in it, I think, is is pretty clever. And I don't think I've seen it in many games, which is just that if you're behind and you score a bullseye, you immediately go again. And so... It's a really rare thing that happens. I've, you know, I've played the game hundreds of times and I've maybe seen it happen, I don't know, probably like four or five times. But um, but just having the possibility there of like, you know, you're down eight nothing or something like that and you could actually storm back and win. Um, it just like, even even no matter how improbable it is, it's another thing, again, how the, how the scoring is not necessarily about the strategy of the game, but instead about like, timing the game and keeping people engaged at all stages instead of like, you know, people just sort of becoming kind of like, you know, feeling like down and out and they're never going to win because they're down by eight points and we might as well get this game over with. It's like, all right, if I only could just give the perfect clue now, then we'll only be down eight to four. And then if we do it again, then it'll be tied and we'll really be able to come back. And so like you could describe that as strategy, but to me, it's sort of more about engagement. Definitely. All right, so when it comes to designing a new one of these games, it seems like it's very difficult to create a fresh one, right? There's been so many, I mean, we're talking about, I mean, monikers, like you're saying, the game Celebrity has been around forever. And so you're talking about such a a giant amount of time that you're designing games against, right? There's been so many games that have come out over the last, you know, 100 years. And so how do you create a fresh one? How do you come at it with with new eyes and from a new angle? Yeah, I mean, that's... That's a really hard question that's that's almost impossible to answer. But so to give the example of Wavelength, it's interesting because um, the way it came about was actually I played The Mind. Um, I had heard all these great things about that game and I imported a copy from German Amazon uh, because I have no life and because it wasn't available in the, in, uh, the US yet. And so um, and it just sounded like the exact type of game I would love. And so I played it and... I immediately went home and and messaged Wolfgang on Board Game Geek. This was like, you know, a couple of years ago now at this point. And I was just like, I just played this game. It's like one of the most interesting games I've played in years. Um, and I was just like wondering if you had ever thought about like collaborating with anyone for a for a board game. And so, you know, surprisingly enough, you wrote back and was like, oh, no one's really asked me that before. <laughs> and like, clearly that's not true anymore because he's, you know, one of the best game designers in the world. But um but that's sort of how how that relationship started. And so from that, it was interesting because he's, you know, he was basically like, I have the core of like an interesting game concept. And so he essentially had been, uh, he essentially like described the kind of like nuts and bolts of wavelength. And like the interesting part was that 
um, Justin and I had been working on a really similar game for a while, but it was sort of, we had come about it from a the completely like different direction where like he was coming at it from like, oh, it's the mind, but you're trying to guess on a number line between like one and six or something like that. Ours was sort of the more complex version of like, um, there's like a two axis graph and you're trying to sort of give a clue at a point um, between like two concepts on like the X axis and the Y axis. And like when he was pitching, I'm like, oh my God, he just like took one of the axes out. And it's like, this is such a better game than we would have thought of. But it was like such a strange like confluence of things because like we really had to sort of like been thinking about a, a very similar version of the same game, but like we sort of converged from like two different angles of it. And so that's sort of how Wavelength emerged. And like, you know, I credit like, you know, like Wolfgang deserves all the credit in the world for sort of like the core ideation of the game. And so, um, and so it, it was really instructive for me to sort of like see how, you know, basically like multiple discovery could work where like people are just kind of like working around the same design principles, but like approaching them from such a drastically different angle. And I think my guess would be that's how, um, that's how these games emerge a lot. Um, which is like, it seems like no one could ever come up with another game where it's just like, get your team to guess the name on a card. But like, there's probably, you know, there's probably like a hundred more really fun party games with that as the core experience. Like I was mentioning with uh, board slam that just sort of uses a novel input mechanism. And like, all you need to do is like, you know, you're going to be at like a, a craft store one day and like see something where it's like a, you know, a box of letters or something like that. That you're like, Oh my God, this is like, this is the sort of like input device for this sort of like classic formulation that like is going to like lead to some new version of like, you know, something that it, you know, sort of feels like a classic way that party games are constructed, but just being mashed up in a way that like you wouldn't have expected um, before. Definitely. All right. So when it comes to playtesting these games, what are you looking for? What kind of notes are you taking as you're watching people playtest your game? We're pretty like, you know, compared to strategy games, obviously like it's way less systematic. Like it, it really does involve sort of like um, a lot of sort of like qualitative uh, assessment of things. Like we we sort of do a decent amount of like survey work around people playtesting the game. But like, I think it's something that like we're not uh, particularly systematic about or could become more systematic about quite honestly. But um, you're basically looking for moments where uh, like, where is the peak fun of the game? Is the, is the thing that you implemented to test in this version of the game? Is it like, is it sort of like additive or subtractive of that peak fun? Um, and if so, like you either, you know, you sort of like leave it in or remove it. Um, and then once you get further along in the process, basically, um, the weird thing that I've somehow specialized in is, is party games that involve like like a massive corpus of like cards that all need to be tested. And so that to me is like uh, something that kind of has defined monikers and wavelength in some ways is just sort of testing large, large, large amounts of, of cards that offer really diverse play experiences um, with monikers. It's sort of like different people and ideas and, you know, pop culture sort of like things and memes um, and sort of balancing that through play testing to see like what people know, what people don't know, um, what people find funny, what people will find not funny. Uh, and then also just like what makes like me and Justin laugh in particular, like, and that's sort of, you know, those things are all sort of like weighted in various ways. Um, and then with wavelength, it's sort of a 
system that's it's just way harder to develop cards for wavelength to be perfectly honest because like you don't have the kind of like ease of onboarding that that monikers has right like you don't go through a first round second round third round where like the first round could be a complete flop but like that's the point and you know the first round being a complete flop for this card makes it even funnier that in the third round people are like saying this strange french phrase um whereas in wavelength like a person is isolated having to give a clue people are sort of waiting for them to give a clue. So it it really like, it needs to like not take a lot of time um, and you need to like really promote like a lack of downtime. And so a lot of the testing around the wavelength cards in particular were for, um, for making the base card set rather than the advanced cards, like fairly easy to give clues around while still like being a game that has like kind of a core brainy uh, nature to it, where it's like actually a game that you like really want to think about and really like enjoy the thought process behind giving a clue. Gotcha. All right, let's switch gears just a little bit. Let's talk about things from kind of the business side of things, the the product side, the marketing side. So typically, party games don't do all that well on Kickstarter. It's just not something that that's normal. It's not like minis. You know, a miniature game has a much higher chance of doing well than a party game on Kickstarter, but yet. With Wavelength, you found a way to make over $300,000, something, you know, 8,000 and something backers. And so how in the world do you market a party game? It's a really tough one, honestly. And like, I I feel like we're, you know, pretty good at it at this point, but also that I, that I ultimately like kind of have like nothing generalizable to say about it. And I worry about just like Kickstarter being like a fairly difficult environment to market party games for like various reasons. I think like Kickstarter sort of, it sort of encourages a, a, like a core sort of like fan set of people to want kind of exclusive things and sort of like, like sort of like high dollar count, uh, like dollar amount games, get a lot of like, you know, physical return on investment, like big boxes, extra mini sort of stretch goals and things like that. And, and these things are like sort of ultimately very antithetical to the nature of party gaming because party gaming is all about simplicity. And so you could, I guess you could imagine a party game that, you know, has, you know, hundreds of pieces or something like that and costs a hundred dollars. But like, I don't think there's much of a market for it because there's so many great party games that's that are essentially just decks of cards uh, for like 20 or $25. And so, um, so the way that we have sort of traditionally like marketed our games on Kickstarter, like we, you know, we're, we're really fortunate enough to have like a really nice fan base from monikers that have sort of stuck with us over the years from like 2015 and we do new expansions every year. And so, you know, we, we like try really hard to kind of respect our fans and not bother them that much unless we have like something really new and fun to do. And so they know they're going to get like an email from us like a couple times a year from a new thing that we're going to do. And so over the years, we sort of cultivated this like pretty big list of people that like our stuff. Um, and then with Wavelength, I think it's sort of, that was sort of like the first pathway to having that essentially just having a core group of fans from a thing you've made before. Um, the second one being like, I think Wolfgang just sort of also has that in terms of just, um, a lot of people were excited to see what he was doing. Um, and so some people that maybe didn't even know about monikers came to the page because of that. Um, and I think like Wolfgang's sort of audience, I guess, or his fans are maybe a little bit more uh, plugged into like the world of board game geek and things like that from Quacks or, uh, or Ganjo and Clever. And so there wasn't like a complete overlap between our fan bases. And so I think part of the success of Wavelength was those two things coming together. And then um, 
And then like, you know, that would be worth nothing if like you went to a page for the Kickstarter and the game looked like crap. Um, and so the most important part is obviously just all of the things that you do on Kickstarter to describe why your game is interesting and fun and worth backing. And so that's sort of the like, you know, that's kind of the art of figuring out how to how to talk about your game and like what makes it exciting to you is maybe not what's going to make it exciting to other people. And like really needing to think about like what are the sort of like core focus areas of your game that like are going to distinguish it from everything else. And like, you know, even if it's a party game, like if you do that well, like people are going to show interest on Kickstarter because you're showing them something they haven't seen before and they're going to imagine uh, like themselves and their friends playing it in a way that's going to make them want to pledge. Um, and for Wavelength, it was, you know, the I think the physical device did a lot. Like that was something we had sort of just baked into the core of the game early on was it needs to have a really kind of juicy component to it um, to make people really feel like they're like physically like dialing in their answer in an analog way in a sort of, you know, an old 70s game show sense almost. Um, and so that was something that like I think gripped people right away. Um, and then from that, we sort of like used all of the like collateral we built essentially like, you know, the video sort of like was structured around these like reveal moments where like you're seeing people incredibly like surprised by the result and just showing people like having fun playing your game is like a really underrated or like underutilized uh, strategy in marketing a game. And it, I'm saying it now and it's, I think it's the first time I've said it and it sounds incredibly stupid, but like, if you go look at Kickstarter, like, and you're like, how many Kickstarters are there that show people having fun playing this game? I would guess it's under 10%. And I think like, that's like, you know, you launch a Kickstarter video and it's like a bunch of sort of like half-baked CGI of like simulated pieces. And like, I don't know, like I, I'm perpetually baffled by the way, like people market their games on Kickstarter. Like obviously they do really well, but like just so much of it leaves me cold. Cause like, again, getting back to the party game aspect, like I just want to, I just like want to see what this game is going to make me feel like. And so not showing people playing the game really, or if they do kind of having demo videos of, of sort of like solo explainer type things happening rather than like, you know, seeing the sort of like social experience you're going to have is something that's, um, that's never not going to be strange to me. Yeah. That's a really, really good point. Well, Alex, this has been awesome, man. As far as closing thoughts, what would you say to somebody? Maybe they're listening to this. Maybe they've been designing a, a party game for a while. What would you tell them kind of to end the show with? Oh, wow. I mean, I just make a Kickstarter and 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 put your game out there. Like, I think like too many people try to like sweat, you know, how to, how to like properly market the game, how to sell it to a publisher and everything. And like, I don't know, if you feel like you're, excited to sort of like get your hands dirty in the world of making a game like there's no better way to do it than like going on like making your own kickstarter and trying it out because like the risk of it is so low like even if you fail you're going to learn a lot um and i just think it's like something that like everybody starting out in the industry should do because like you know maybe maybe you don't feel like you're great at the product design side of it or anything but it's really like you know, party games, like, especially like you're not going to have to like do artwork for 50 cards probably unless you have something really like sort of exotic in the way that you're like making it. And so I think just like getting it out there and like, you know, play testing it with like friends and like getting out into the wider world and like having a print and play version of it and just seeing how it performs. Like there's such little barrier to it. And like, you're, you know, like if you sort of set your expectations to just be like, 
as long as we hit our goal and sell 500 copies of the game or 200 copies of the game or 10 copies of the game, um, you're going to be happy. Like it's just going to be a really, really fulfilling experience. Um, and like, you know, it's going to, it's going to like teach you more about, um, like what the industry is like and how to, how to make games than like, you know, a thousand sort of like meetings with, with potential publishers. Awesome. Well, you got a game on Kickstarter right now. Tell me about that party game. Yeah, we uh we just launched a game called Fuzzballs. It's uh it's kind of our follow up to uh to Wavelength in that it's uh, another game that we're making with Wolfgang. Um, and so uh, the idea is that you're basically uh, you have an enormous tower of these uh, of these colorful fuzzy balls and uh, and Jenga like you're trying to sort of pull one out and stack them on the top of the tower without it falling over. And so it's sort of our riff on that kind of uh, classic version of a dexterity game. Um, but kind of in a in a way that like only Wolfgang could have conceived of, where it's not just these sort of like really 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 sort of like solid brick objects. Like it's this like strange sort of squishy tower of fuzzy balls that like seem to defy physics as you're as you're sort of like pulling them off and putting them on. It sort of like sags and droops in a way that like you 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 wouldn't even imagine like it would it would work. I remember that being my first reaction when it was like here's this game idea that I had. I'm just like, how can these like balls stay together um, in this huge tower? But they do. And it's, um, it's really like just such a like fun thing to, to play in a way that's like joyful. And and I don't think I've ever played anything like it. I'm just really excited to have like jumped onto the project and have done a lot of the like product design around and like thinking around how to make it like look and feel as exciting as possible. Very cool. Alex, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with the Kickstarter and everything else you got going on right now. Excellent. Thanks, Gabe. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?